Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Slow Home Podcast. I'm uh, Brooke McCallery. I'm your host and the founder of slowyourhome.com. Next to me is my co-host and better half, other half, sometimes better half, Ben. Well, well, well. Three holes in the ground. G'day. G'day. Uh, so today we have a, a really, really interesting conversation actually that I had uh, a couple of weeks ago with um, a woman named Sarah Mackay. She's a, a neuroscientist. She's uh, based in Sydney, but she's just given a TED talk, a TEDx talk in uh, North Sydney, which I will I'll link to in the show notes. But she's a neuroscientist who now runs her own website. Uh, she she talks about uh, two things. She writes about medical writing, but she also writes about um, our brain's health and the impact that it has on our overall health and well-being. And it's really fascinating. I mean, we, we get into neuroplasticity and the impact of you know mindfulness and specifically napping the the um the positive impacts of having a a little kip every day what that that does to our brain but um yeah i really enjoyed enjoyed the conversation as as did i i thought um it was really interesting particularly the napping aspect which I would love to embrace more, but would find it quite difficult uh, working uh, in an office. But how good would that be if it became sort of part of new HR, OH&S stuff that people were encouraged to um, nap? be so good. Well, I mean, going back to what you were saying, though, about the, the time that napping on sort of mindfulness and, and practicing meditation and stuff becomes part of the everyday corporate environment. It's actually already started to happen. You know, really? Yeah, you work in the wrong office. Um, Carl uh, Honoré has spoken about it a little and also in uh, Ariana Huffington's book Thrive, which I feel like I mention every episode, uh, she talks about specific companies that will have in their, their corporate offices, they've got like a, a zen floor. Uh, where you know they've got meditation rooms and yoga rooms and nap pods and things like that. So I think, I do think there is probably a, a bit of a a groundswell of change happening, at least in some quarters, where we're starting to realise that we can't continue to burn the candle at both ends and the middle and still have people do a good job. And short of giving away any more of the interview um people can um for more information and to uh, view the show notes to this podcast just visit uh com forward slash 14 today's episode's 14 where you'll be able to get sarah's um tedx talks and all the other links and interesting tidbits mentioned in this interview before you coming up I like that you called them titbits. Uh Sarah, before before I um I do finish up though, Sarah you can find Sarah's blog at yourbrainhealth.com.au. That's something that I would definitely recommend that you check out. And uh everything else will be linked to in the show notes. And today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com, where you can access over hundred and eighty thousand audiobooks and you can listen to them on your your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, any other device that you may have. And today you can sign up to Audible at audibletrial.com slash slow 
to get a free audiobook of your choice of out of their 180,000. Uh, one book that I pretty much recommend to everyone that I, I come across, whether they're a writer or not, is Stephen King's book. It's called On Writing. Uh, so even if you're not strictly a writer, I can almost guarantee that you'll love this book anyway because it just gets into what makes a good story and how you know a master does his work. It's, it's such an awesome book and he actually narrates the audible version. So you can uh, you can download that for free if you go to audibletrial.com slash slow or you can, you know, choose another book. I, I don't mind. Yeah, um, I, I would recommend uh, The Fry Chronicles from Stephen Fry. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, narrated by Stephen Fry. And I said tidbits, not titbits, for the record. I have it on audio. Titbit, titbit. Tidbit. Uh, and also, before before we get into the show with this monstrously long intro, there's one other thing that I did want to mention. Um, my friend Joel Zaslovsky is running a uh, a simple living conference in Minneapolis uh, on the f- the first weekend of October. So I think it's the Friday, Saturday, the second and third of October of 2015. And uh, tickets are on sale now. And uh, I'm not saying whether or not I'll be there or not, but the people who will be speaking include um, Joshua Becker, Courtney Carver, Mark and Angel from Mark and Angel Hack Life, Fanu Sprock, um, yeah, Stephen Fry. <laughs> Stephen Fry and his titbits uh, will not be there. Uh, so I would I would definitely recommend that you check it out if you live in the area or if you're going to be in the area for for that period of time. I know Joel puts on a, a fantastic event and you can find tickets and that kind of information at simplerev.com. That's simple, simple, and rev.com. So with that, anything else? Enjoy the show. Enjoy the show. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, thank you. So excited to be chatting. It's uh, it's awesome. Thank you for uh, for joining us. I, once I uh, I heard a bit about you and started reading about what you're you're doing, I'm like, I can't mm. wait to get you on the show. Can't wait to oh. to have a chat. So thank you. Um, can you just let us know a little bit about what you do? Um, you know, your work, your current work, and your background in neuroscience, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Sure. Well. It's probably easier to start with what I used to do than what I do now. So I've been a neuroscientist since I left school. So I've always been on this same path and it's always been a really big passion for me and interest. And um, it's 20, 22 years after I first started studying neuroscience at university, the brain finally got cool <laughs> and neuroscience is finally something that other people are starting to show an interest in which is very exciting for someone like me so I studied neuroscience all the way through university and have a PhD in neuroscience as well I am a Kiwi in case you can't tell by my accent and I was very fortunate to win a scholarship to study neuroscience at Oxford University in the UK so I spent four years over there um, 
doing my master's and then a PhD in neuroscience. Um, my PhD topic was nature, nurture, neuroplasticity, which is now sounds amazing. <laughs> at the time, <laughs> at the time, people were like, "Right, okay, neuroscience is that neuroscience is that to do with Europe?" <laughs> now I say that topic, and people go, "Oh, wow, tell me more." So basically, I was studying how the connections in the brain wire up during development and how they change over time. And specifically, I was looking at the visual cortex, so how the connections in the brain change in response to experience and response to light and dark. Um, so I spent three or four years at Oxford studying that and met my lovely husband there. He's Irish. And when I got to the end of my studies there. He was working in London and we thought, what are we going to do with our lives? So we sat down and wrote a list of cities in the world we'd like to live in. And Sydney is always going to come out on most people's lists, I think. And so we thought, let's go to Sydney for a year and see what happens. And that was nearly 14 years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we came here on a little bit of a whim. Both of us grew up by the sea my husband grew up in a sailing family, so it was a real natural kind of um, transition for us to live here, and I can't imagine we'll ever live anywhere else. We live on the northern beaches in Sydney and spend an awful lot of time in the water and on the water, near the water. Um, when I first moved here, I did a couple of postdoc research positions, which is if after you've studied a PhD and you want to carry on as an academic scientist, then you um, do what they call a postdoc postdoc training. It's kind of like the next stage in, in your academic career. So I did a couple of um, two different postdoc um, roles. The first one was looking at spinal cord injury, and the second one was looking was back to looking at neuroplasticity and how the wiring in the brain changes up in response to the environment and the experiences that we have. Um, I really starting during my PhD, I started getting this little voice inside saying that there was something else out there for me that wasn't probably academia, but that was a really, really difficult. It took about five or six years to start listening to that voice because I loved what I did. I loved science. I loved neuroscience. I loved the, the intellectual stimulation that comes from that, the, the people who do science, um, the scientific method, scientific discovery, being in the lab, doing research. I loved all of that, but I kind of knew that a career in academia wasn't really for me. Um, I loved being an undergrad because there was that freedom of what to learn and research and study. But I really struggled once I became an employee, once I was a postdoc, because I had too many ideas of my own that I wanted to pursue. And it doesn't always work like that when you're employed by someone else. You've really got to do what they want you to do. <laughs> um, and all of this sort of culminated with, and we don't need to get into the politics of it all, but how research is funded in Australia and trying to get research grants and there's a lot of gatekeepers and you're always trying to get papers published and trying to get grant money and it's a really, really, really difficult career ladder to climb. Um, you really not, you, you've got to be working 24-7 and there's a lot of people that are prepared to do that, And even, but even if they do do that, don't get ahead. Um, 
And I just knew that I didn't want that kind of life. I know the last funding round from the Australian government signed, it was something like a 15% success rate for people who applied for grants. So it was really, really tough. Um, But So I had all of those concerns and all of these ideas about exploring some other part of science, but I still loved science so much. It was one of those really, I was really conflicted for a long time. Um, And I also knew that I wanted to, um, well, the things I loved doing when I was working in the research lab, but also a lot of the public outreach, we used to get tour groups coming through and I'd always give these presentations about the work we did and get the rotary groups coming through and these lovely older ladies and gentlemen and talking to them about science and why it was important and what I did and how it was relevant to their lives. I just loved doing that. Um, but that doesn't really get you ahead in a career in academia. So again, I was I was really conflicted. I kind of knew I liked talking about science, um, people who weren't scientists, but I didn't think that you could have a career in that unless you'd done more training and done another degree, perhaps in journalism or something like that. So I, I'd spent a long time questioning um, where I wanted to go with my career. Then I got pregnant. <laughs> and I think that for many women, it's often a time when you start going, right, how is family life going to unfold for me? And my husband has a pretty full-on job in the city. He's hardly ever home before eight at night. And I knew that something would give if I carried on with my academic career, he carried on with his career and we had kids and we had a family. And so I made a real conscious decision at that point to, I guess, what, what you know, the, the ethos of what you do is just to s- simplify my life and take a step back and decide what kind of childhood I wanted to give to what, my children mm-hmm. when I had them and find a way to some in some way do science but make it calm and simple and not rushed and frantic because I don't do rushed and frantic and busy. <laughs> I don't enjoy it. I just didn't want to be the one who was rushing around trying to have it all and do it all and be it all. So I took a real conscious step to step away from academia, which was incredibly hard because I thought that I could only be a neuroscientist if I was in the lab. <clears throat> and then I had my little boy, Harry. That was He's just turned seven, and I have another little boy, Jamie, who's five. And I've spent the last seven years since I had Harry working for myself from home, which I love because it's calm and it's simple (laughs) and it's not busy. And I've learned that I can indulge my love and passion for neuroscience in a different way. Um, Initially, I was working, doing a lot of freelance science writing and journalism for lots of different publications and clients. About two years ago, two and a half years ago, I decided to start a neuroscience blog because I've got very, I got very interested in um, the world of blogging and social media and conversations around health and wellness. And I saw so many amazing blogs out there with people talking about health and wellness. Well, there's no one really talking about it from a scientific point of view. This is when this whole interest in things like mindfulness, neuroplasticity, brain health was all sort of starting to come into people's consciousness in the conversation. And I thought, well, why can't I write a, a wellness blog based on neuroscience mm. evidence and, and take my love of communicating science and making it really simple and accessible and um, 
but but you know talk about it in that kind of warm friendly emotional way that that um, a lot of the conversations around health and wellness are done done so so well by so many people online but with neuroscience really ground you know grounding it so that was about two and a half years ago and it's been a real game changer for so many in so many ways for me personally and professionally um, it's a so that's, your blog's fantastic. Sorry to interrupt. It, um, it's, I mean, if that that's what you went out to achieve, you know, talking about mm. neuroscience in under the umbrella of health and wellness, but based in science, but still having that friendly, approachable uh, kind of vibe to it. You've nailed yeah. it. It's such, yeah. you know, I did, I fell down the rabbit hole for about forty five minutes when I was researching yeah. our chat, and it's just there's so much to be gained there, and. Uh, yeah, I think you've, yeah. you've done an incredible job. Well, thank you, because I think so often the sort of the science and the evidence-based medical community get very frustrated with a lot of conversations around health and wellness. And say they say they're not evidence-based, and we should be making rational decisions, and we everything should be based on fact, and all of that is true. But there are ways to get people to listen and to warm to you and to want to understand science that most scientists don't do. They think facts are enough. Mm. figures are enough and they are not that's not what people people want to um you know they want to feel emotion and they want to be understood and they want to be empathized with and they don't want to be spoken down to so that's what I've really tried very hard to do and it has worked and I just I just love it because I love the response I get I love trying to take science and I'm not trying to manipulate it or turn it into something that it's not or overreach with the information or the data I always stay true to that but I just have so much fun kind of crafting stories and and ways that are relevant and that's why I call it everyday neuroscience stories that are relevant to people's everyday life and as time has gone on um, anyone who has a blog will know you, you get a little bit more in tune with what people want and how to you know give them the stories or the information or the science that, that they're really interested in. So it's really changed a lot of, per, personally, I just feel I get to indulge my great love every day by, by writing about the brain. And professionally, it's given me so many opportunities that never would have come my way. And it's because I'm, you know, it sounds a bit woo, but, but it's because I'm really aligned with my purpose. No, I mean it makes perfect mm. sense, and I know you've you've had a recent experience that I want to dive into in a minute, um, which is awesome. But go, just going back to what you said at the beginning, you know, the ideas behind um, the ideas of mindfulness and um, you know positivity and that you know that kind of awareness of neuroplasticity. You know, people might not be able to necessarily explain what it is, but we're aware that it's, you know, it's a thing and it's impacting our lives. That kind of stuff is really having its time in the sun, particularly online. I feel like there, as as you already said, there's a lot of people writing about it in the health and wellness kind of area. And it's only been the last few years, probably the last couple of years that I personally have noticed a massive increase in people talking about the benefits of mindfulness and, you know, slowing down and living in the present moment and that kind of thing. You've, you've obviously seen a huge increase. Yeah. And I, and I mean, I had to learn that personally as well. After having my kids, I never was technically diagnosed with postnatal depression, but it's such a big change, especially the older you have your kids. I was in my mid thirties and being at home, even though I'd chosen to be at home with them, we don't have any family support in Australia. 
Um, and you know what it's like when your children are little, it's really, really, really hard. Yes, it is. And I had to, you know, learn about mindfulness for my own sake. Mm. Um, that book, Buddhism for Mothers, I don't know if you've read that by Sarah McFarley. That just saved saved me. And that was it's Buddhist mindfulness principles. Okay. Um, specifically for mothers. And I I went from having this constant narrative in my head every time I emptied the dishwasher that what you know I have a PhD from Oxford why am I emptying the dishwasher I've there's so much more in my life than this I can't believe I decided to stay at home with these kids this is all like I can't even empty the dishwasher and it was a very negative um repeating now every time I opened the dishwasher door it was almost like it was this and now I know I'd wired you know, my brain, if I had this kind of habitual thought that was triggered by the dishwasher door opening, I'd start this narrative in my head and I'd really be berating myself. Um, And it was learning about mindfulness, Um, you know, just turning that narrative off and just focusing on the task. Little things like that. And I had to, I had to learn that through reading and I had some therapy to learn that to, to to stop narrating and to be mindful and that was really that kind of happened around the same time I started building my business um, and that it, it it changed things for me um, yeah, it's it's um it's funny when I look back and think how unha- unhappy I was <laughs> but something as as simple as mindfulness and you know hanging the hanging the clothes out in the line I used to have a, a different narrative that would kick off and um, you know there's this the science there's neuroscience to show, you know, these 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 habitual thought patterns we have are no different from any other um, habit that we that we form that we do over and over again. Um, breaking it is really hard, though. Yes, I that's, think that's where something... my yeah mindfulness is is one part of of um, you know learning to cope with you know these these habitual thought patterns that we can let take over and you know we'd never speak to someone else that way we'd speak to ourselves that way (laughs) exactly you know it's it's fascinating to me that the things that we allow ourselves to get away with when we're talking to ourselves you know the the inner dialogue is brutal so brutal i think it's um and i can only speak from you know my point of view but as a mum when i when i was you know in that transition stage between working and i ran my own business and then all of a sudden life got way too overwhelming and I closed the business and I was at home with the kids and life was just not at all what it used to be like. And it was just this brutal inner dialogue. I would never in a million years speak to someone else the way I speak to myself, you know, but it becomes, as you say, and I obviously wasn't aware of the science behind it, but just this ingrained pattern of behavior and inner dialogue. And it, you know, uh, I know a lot of people, it, something happens like there's a moment where you you come to a comes to a head and you think that this actually can't keep going or it's going to become really damaging did you ever have a a moment of realization where you're like this is not um this is not okay I need to make changes yeah yeah there was I had some some big moments when I was really struggling was my family's um my mum and my sister live in Christchurch and they had those big earthquakes in 2010 and 11 and that was really when I was struggling quite a lot um, with just coping with being a mum and not having family support around. And then obviously they went through devastating earthquakes and they lost their homes. And and my mum lived in a house for a year without, um, you know, with a portaloo and, mm. um, you know, no electricity for months. It was They were incredibly stressed. 
and for for what seemed a much more valid reason than me, <laughs> some spoilt girl who suddenly didn't was working, you know, at, I was at home with the children. I really felt for a very long time I wasn't justified in asking for help, um, or that I even deserved to be feeling unhappy because I was comparing myself to 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 them and their unhappiness. Um, and they're real, what I perceived as real stress. It's not a competition, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a, it was really around that time when I realised I, I couldn't rely on them for the same emotional support, or especially my mum, because she's a great emotional support via Skype as much as she can be. They had some real stuff to deal with. It was right around that time when I realised I couldn't lie on the bed every afternoon and cry, um, waiting until. 6.30 came for the boys to go to bed um, and I that was when I said right I've got to yeah I've got to do something I remember I would lie crying on the bed thinking 6 o'clock's never going to come how am I going to get through the rest of the afternoon mm. um, and I was and then I started getting worried that um, I, I, I didn't suffer from depression I'm more my um, coping and struggling around that time really came out as, as anger and I was I was Perhaps I was stressed, but it but it manifested as anger, and I worried that I was going to hurt my children. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was when I went and got some help. But I remember going to my GP and told her how I was feeling, and she said, "Oh, you're one of my most together mothers." She said, "There's nothing wrong with you." <gasps> and I said, oh, "Okay, right. Well, I want to go and see a therapist." So she said, "Oh, well, you have to do the post uh, the Edinburgh postnatal depression scale to qualify for Medicare funding to have a, to see a therapist and I said well I'll fail it on purpose then if that's what I've got to do but it came back saying I wasn't depressed I knew I wasn't depressed I was I was under a lot of stress and it was all almost uh, stress that I'd self-imposed on yeah. my you know I'd put on myself I didn't have there was no physical stress around me it was all it was just all those negative thought patterns and I guess the withdrawal of emotional support from New Zealand because of what they were going through. Mm. So yeah, and that and that one, and I was so embarrassed. I thought, what do I need to see a therapist for? <laughs> I thought, you know, I was too together for that, and that's what my GP thought because uh, I'm very good at putting on a good face, as so many people are. So yeah, and I think yeah. Um, uh, that's a real danger, actually. You know, it's it's you put you put on that that little performance, you know, everything's fine. I'm doing fine because you don't want to be the person who's not coping, um, you know, because it's capital, capital not coping kind of. Uh, and that, the, there's a, a stigma to that. You know, that's something that I had to struggle with too because I'm like, you know, my life's good. We, we have a home and everyone's healthy and like, there was nothing. There's nothing, yeah, there was nothing wrong. Exactly, exactly. but it's, you know, yep. these, these um, comparisons and pressures and perceived pressures that we put ourselves under, that they were the, the, the biggest weight mentally for me. I mean, I then dealt with it by simplifying and, you know, I went and got um, therapy and that was ongoing for years and it was such a life changer. But, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to hear a very similar story to mine, so it's resonating a lot. Yeah, I think so many people have that story, and we still yes. don't. And I still don't haven't shared that story with so many people because I I felt like I didn't I had it too good. So who was I to mm-hmm. to um you know be not coping? Yes. I, what did I have to not cope with? I had two beautiful, healthy children, a wonderful husband, a lovely home. You know, I 
I didn't have an earthquake. I didn't have cancer. That's right. And <laughs> no, there's guilt it, associated with yeah, feeling yeah, that and so I, I felt that way and so I, I was constantly berating myself and not being a good mother and they'd be better off without me and, um, you know, comparing myself to the, the childhood I had. And, and so, you know, it was one of those real, I thought, right, I've got to do something. And I also started exercising a lot more, which um, made a huge a huge difference physically and a, and, a, and a big, big difference mentally. I did one of those 12-week body transformations and um, I, I didn't really have to change my diet because I think my, my diet was fine. Um, it was doing the exercise mm. and that combined with the therapy and combined with learning about mindfulness. Um, within, sort of, it re- within two or three months, I, the, the, you know, it changed me. And I, I didn't lie around crying anymore in the afternoons. I was excited about life again. And I, I yeah, I felt great. And I, you know, fell in love with my kids again mm-hmm. and um, with my life again. Yeah. It's amazing. You don't, well, I, I know with me, I didn't realize how far I had fallen and how, you know, how negative my headspace had become until it started mm-hmm. to not be that way anymore. You know, until mm-hmm. I started to feel excited about life and, you know, feel Mm. just feel the whole range of emotions again rather than stuck in this negative um mindset i hadn't realized how far things had shifted towards negatives until i started improving so when you um when you say you first started exploring the ideas of you know of mindfulness what were the first things the first steps that you took to to start engaging more mindfully really it was just understanding the repetitive thought patterns I had so I suppose whether it was mindfulness as much as a cognitive behavioral therapy approach where I started recognizing my my thought pattern and um trying to engage a different you know as 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 my life my life is much more than emptying the dishwasher I'm worth much more than that and also one recognizing there was a there was a, a narrative there and to use a different narrative, which is a much more of a, a cognitive behavioural approach where you change your thought pattern. Um, and then the mindfulness approach was really when I was doing things which, were, which we've all got to do. We've all got to pick up the kids' socks. <laughs> we've all got to wipe the bench. All of those things which I used to feel were some and, and sweep the floor, which was some, you know, oppression <laughs> I placed on myself just to approach them as I'm, I'm merely sweeping the floor and thousands of people for thousands of years, millions of people all over the world sweep the floor. All I'm doing is sweeping the floor. So it was almost, um, yeah, it was, it was just, it was understanding that there was a different, there was a different way from what I was doing and I'd fallen into this pattern and it's, it was almost as soon as I realized that, um, I, I could start thinking about something else. It's, it's just catching yourself at that moment. Mm. Um, it was pretty straightforward once I figured it out or once I learned that. Um, and, and, yeah, as I say, the, the transformation was pretty quick. That combined with the exercise, which I think was also um, about getting into my body. I do I love going to pump classes at the gym. Um because I, it's very structured and it's very, um, you're focusing on one body part at a time and it's quite rhythmic. So in a way it's mindful. 
Um, just listening to the instructions and, fo- you know, you're doing your squats and so you're focusing on your thighs and your bum muscles and really getting into my body, I think, is another that's – that's a different kind of mindfulness. Um, again, you're not – there's no narration. You're not thinking. You're just being in your body and focusing on one body part at a time. And now when I've had a really stressful week, a few, a few weeks ago I had a really stressful few days – the Saturday morning I got up and I went straight to a pump class and I, and I focus my, all of my attention to each one of those exercises and that, that rhythmic repeating and the, you know, that, the pain you feel and just getting out of my head and into my body is, is also another just I find it so helpful and healing and um, helps me you know, get over that stress well, it's a real so act was, of, of single-mindedness, isn't it? You know, um, hmm. you're really just focusing yeah. on that one thing. That's one of the main yeah. reasons that I love both yoga and um, snowboarding, even though I'm not yes. particularly good at either of them. But, you know, yeah. I, I, there's no room in my head for other things. Otherwise, I'm going to crash and break an arm or something, you know. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. My, I, I don't mountain bike as much, but my husband and one of my kids mountain bikes, and he says the same. It's getting into that, that flow when you're mountain biking, when you're doing something physical like that, I find I have to, to attend a lot more to do it when I'm in a pump class, but I find it's not as, you don't kind of lose yourself in the same way that you would if you were skiing or um, something slightly more challenging, I suppose. But um, yeah, and that's, um, I, I, I guess I, um, I, I struggle with meditation, with mm-hmm. sitting and breathing. I just struggle with that and I end up, you know, I can't do this. I've got, you know, this whole, you know, you get a thought coming into your head and you meant to just gently watch it travel by and bring yourself back. And I just get really stressed out. <laughs> I think I that's really I, nice though, refreshing for people to hear. Like you, you've studied mindfulness and you understand the brain and mindfulness and meditation aren't two sides of the same coin. No, I think people, things. yes, they are. You know, people often com- confuse the two. Yeah, and there is mindfulness meditation as a type of meditation, but that that whole sitting and breathing, um, you know, rising early and and having your sacred place and all that just doesn't work for me. <laughs> I just um, I don't enjoy it, and I know that you've got to practice and you've got to. And I talk about this um, in my TED talk. You know, it takes focus and determination and effort, and I just <laughs> I just struggle with that. Um, but mindfulness for me is something different and walking, you know, mindful walking that, you know, I, I can do all of that mm. and I get those benefits and we'll talk about later what I do instead of meditating, but I'd love to hear what you do instead of meditating, actually. I take, I take afternoon naps. So this is, this is um, your TED Talk, which, is, which yes. is the opportunity I alluded to a minute ago. Um, you've just spoken at a TED conference, yeah. um, which is awesome. I can't, week, yeah. I, uh, I can't wait to, to watch it. And by the time um, this podcast is released, it should be out, and I'll link to it in the yeah. show notes. Um, but, uh, yeah, so can you tell me a bit about your TED Talk? First of all, what you spoke about, and then also what the experience sure. of it was like. Sure. It's funny to think, you know, five minutes ago I'm talking about this woman who used to lie in her bed and cry every afternoon wondering if I could go on. <laughs> and then I just gave a TED Talk last week. Wow. Um, <laughs> the power of mindfulness, people. <laughs> wow, yeah. Gosh, and blogging. <laughs> yes. I don't, yeah, it's it's funny when you look look at it like that. So the topic of my talk was Indulge, well, it was titled Indulge Your Neurobiology 
when you give a TED talk, if you ever get the opportunity to give one, it's I wanted to talk about something that I I do that I'm passionate about that I that I love, but I wanted I wanted it to be about neuroscience. So it didn't take very long for me about five minutes to come up with the idea of talking about afternoon naps because there is some fantastic um, neuroscience to support taking the afternoon nap. What I do is I don't go and lie in bed for three hours and sleep. I take a 20-minute power nap and there's some science to back that up. Um, so I'm trying to think about how to explain this to you without actually just giving you my TED talk. <laughs> I'm so used to talk, practicing my TED talk. I'm, my brain has got this, it's got the talk embedded in it. And as soon as I start talking about it, I want to start giving the talk automatically. <laughs> That's why I'm sounding a bit um, like I'm stumbling. The, the, when I, I'll, I'll just talk about what I talked in the talk. There was, there was three main main. Um, things that I think uh, an afternoon nap can do for you besides um, helping you get through those couple of hours that many of us struggle with in the early afternoon where you feel sleepy and you feel tired and you kind of, um, you want to sleep but you feel like you shouldn't. And that's just a natural part of our neurobiological rhythm, our circadian rhythm, and it's programmed in. It's not programmed into everybody's and some people struggle with it a lot more. And it doesn't always necessarily have to do with how much sleep you had the night before. But lots of us will get to 2, 2.30 in the afternoon and go, oh, gosh, I'm really sleepy. Mm-hmm. And we think that there's something we've done wrong. We think, oh, I had too much, too many carbs for lunch or I didn't get enough sleep the night before or I'm bored or I need to go for a walk. And obviously there's many cultures in the world that have a siesta. They recognize that. And it's really nice if you can choose to indulge your neurobiology and respect that urge and take that nap. Now, in the talk, I I talk about a few different things that um, the benefits that will come from napping. So besides just the fact that it's lovely and it's enjoyable and you don't feel tired when you wake up is it can improve your memory and learning. And there's a lot of studies done around and a lot of sleep science labs in the world looking at sleep and napping. But they've done studies, for example, where they teach someone a complex task, like perhaps navigating through a maze. They get people to nap, and the people will have learned their way through the maze much better um, if they've had a nap than if they haven't had a nap. Hmm. So it's like napping hits save on your memory. Um, the other thing I talked about was using napping as a brain hack to help achieve creative insights. So, you know, when you're trying to solve a problem, there's a couple of ways you can do it. One is to focus all your attention on it and try and figure it out. And, you know, other times you just suddenly see the solution to a problem. Mm-hmm. You ever had that? You just suddenly go, ah, mm-hmm. ah, that's it. That's a creative insight. Now, our brains don't achieve creative insights when we're focused on the problem. It has to be calm and it has to be happy and it has to be relaxed. And almost, you know, people often have them in the shower. Yes. You know what? Because you can't actually take your iPhone in the shower. Exactly. There's, there's no one there with you. There's nothing there except you and the water. And, it's, you know, you're usually calm and you're relaxed and you're not usually focused too hard on anything. Mm-hmm. That's when you're going to achieve those creative insights. And one way to achieve those creative insights is to put yourself into a nap-like state. And lots of, um, like Salvador Dali used to use naps to help get the insights for his artwork. Um, 
and and the idea that there's there's this thought um, they've done some scans on the brain looking at people achieving creative insights and lots of um, the parts of the brain like the visual part of the brain and the hearing part of the brain and the thinking part of the brain almost seem to shut down as a creative insight kind of bubbles to the surface it's almost like you need to shut down all of the thought processes wow. and stimulation to get that creative insight so you can work on you can do something else you can have a shower or you can have a nap and people who have naps are much more likely to help, to have creative insights just because they've given their brain that complete downtime. Um, so and when then you the have, third, sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I was going to ask, if you have someone who's like, okay, I've got 20 minutes, I can nap. Yeah. How, is there a certain way you would suggest that someone wind down really quickly for a brief well, nap? I think that the key, one of the keys is to do it when you, when you need to. Yep. Yeah. You can't always. You're not gonna. If you don't need one, then don't. Yeah. Can't, you know, <laughs> don't you, force it's yourself. like don't. You can't force yourself because you probably won't sleep, or maybe you might have to lie there for twenty minutes until you sleep, and then you may have ended up lying on the sofa for an hour and a half before it all, all happens. I, if I need, to, if I just that feeling comes, like oh, you know, I used to fight through it, and I'd have about two hours of fighting it off, and I would never get anything done in those two hours an hour that feeling comes and I think right have I got have I got the space have I got and I work from home my kids are at school I think right so I will lie down and I'll have a 20 minute nap and I'll set my alarm usually for 25 minutes giving myself that five minutes to drop off I make sure I'm nice and warm and cozy and the key with the 20 minutes is that you don't sleep for so long that you that you fall into deep sleep the sort of slow wave um the, the, when I talk about slow, I mean the brain's waves. The, you don't get that slow wave deep sleep. And when you wake from that, that's when you feel cranky and groggy and you can't get going. Right. And that's what's called sleep inertia. Okay. So if you sleep for only 20 minutes, you don't, your sleep doesn't become so deep that you feel like you can't get going again. You'll, you'll wake up and go, oh, you're yeah. ready to go within a couple of minutes. It's those it's long, still it's those long yeah, a recharge, it'll recharge you, it'll give you those insights and it'll, it'll help improve your memory and it will also help you emotionally. And that's the third, the third thing I talked about was I use naps as a way to smooth those kind of rough, jagged emotional edges that build up during the day. And there's some science I talk about in my TED Talk that looks, looks at how we respond to emotions in others and, and also how I respond to my kids' emotions, little kids. They're becoming a little more emotionally stable now they're both at school. But especially when they're little, the more tired, the more frazzled I was, the less well I would deal with my kids' emotions. If I even had a 20-minute nap when they napped, or I would sometimes put them in front of the TV and take a 20-minute nap because that got me through the rest of the afternoon and evening. Mm. And I wasn't reacting emotionally in the wrong way to their emotions I was that 20 minutes will just reset you emotionally it gives your prefrontal cortex which is like your the thinking CEO part of your brain it gives that greater control over your emotional responses so you can be a bit more rational coping with their emotions right because I mean so you, there, yeah that but cycle of um emotional and reactionary kind of responses particularly when you've got little kids I mean you can't rationalize that away easily (laughs) I I never could um you know it's it's yeah you once you buy into it and if you're tired and everything just increases in its 
pitch yep. and you know um, stress yeah. levels. Yeah. It's, it just, yeah. You just yeah, and and that will it'll reduce all of your stress hormones. Mm. It it just resets you. And twenty minutes is not very long. No. You don't you know you don't. I'm not talking about two hour naps every day. Um, and that was re- that's then going to impact your night your nighttime sleep. A, a short quick nap like that when you feel that urge if you can make it work for you around that time and I know it doesn't always you know you can't, it's not always doable for everyone all the time but if you can then don't then just like indulge it and just see what happens mm. I love uh, the word indulge I, it, too I yeah, ind- a great yeah word. indulge your neurobiology yes. and you know you don't need to you don't need an app you don't need to do a course you don't need to follow a guru you can just just listen to your body and listen and, and then just choose to indulge it. So would that be your that's my that's my brain that's my like secret weapon. It's such a good secret and weapon. It feels so good as well. Yes. <laughs> it's free, yeah. Oh, like, and who doesn't but, like a nap? Yeah, yeah. Um, and at the weekend if I've had a night, you know, I had a night out on Saturday night to celebrate doing my TED talk with my husband and so I had a few cocktails and I wasn't feeling so good on Sunday morning when the kids came in at six a.m. on Mother's Day, so I took <laughs> I took like an hour and a half nap on Sunday, and that and it was really interesting because I haven't done that in a long time. The feeling I had waking up from that is totally different to mm. how I went from my my strategic little power naps. Yeah, that was that was like restorative sleep. My naps are like just a quick brain hack. It's not a body thing. It's like a just a reset, and and perhaps some people achieve that with meditation. Yeah, well, but that's right. I guess um, the nap a little bit easier to come by. Yes, well, particularly I think meditating is uh, for a lot of people. It's just so difficult to to still their mind enough to feel as though yes. they're doing it right. You know, yeah. even though people who teach meditation say there's no wrong way of doing it, the fact is you kind of are told that if your brain keeps interrupting the flow, or you you know you and you can't just let the f- thoughts flow in and float in and out of your brain, then you're doing it wrong. And that then becomes the thing that you think about. Um, whereas a nap, yeah. you know, there's... You almost need to learn to do it. Yes, you need to... absolutely. That's why I say you don't need to follow a guru to nap. You can, um, you know, it's so, it's, it's just, it's so natural. And sleep is absolute foundation. We, you know, you, you can skip a meal, you can go for a few weeks without exercising, you can eat really badly and you're going to, you're going to, you know, pull through. You have a night without sleep and you, nothing works. You can't go for two nights without sleep and be healthy. Well, your body starts, like, physically you're impacted, aren't you? Physically, yeah. Mm. And, you know, chronic, you know, you can, you can the, the lab animals, probably no one would ever do it in a, in a human, but lab animals will die if they're not left, if they're not allowed to sleep. Mm. Um, you know, it's that, it's just so fundamental. I, oh, a good night's sleep is the absolute foundation for everything. When you've got little kids, that's hard. Um, but getting a good night's sleep is my is my number one. And then if I and, and even if I've had an eight hour sleep the night before, I'll still take that twenty minute nap if I can, if I want to, yeah. if I feel I need to. Um, and it almost gives me a second day. I guess, um, and and that was the key. You said if you feel like you need to, or if yes. you want to, yeah, not it's right. not doesn't become another should or another have to <laughs> on your list. Like, oh right, it's two thirty. I must go and nap, even though I don't no, really no, want no, to. No, no, yeah, no. But I, um, I mean, I think it's we've lost the ability to take time out. Mm. Um, that just I taps into really, the self awareness that you were talking yeah. about as well. 
Yeah, and the and my TED talk. I'm not, I won't talk about it now, but um, if people want to go and watch it, I tell a really funny about a really entertaining experiment that was done in the lab about people taking time out of their day and how much they didn't enjoy it. <laughs> and you know, we're so busy, and you're probably not. I'm probably not. But a lot of the world is, you know, hyperconnected, multitask, and we're always on, and we're always rushing. And and I didn't want to be like that. Taking just you've got to just that downtime. It's so good for your health, mm. so good for your mindset. It's good for your family. Um, I didn't want my children to um, remember when they first went off to school and I thought the one, one thing I wanted for their those early childhood years was that they weren't rushed from here to there. They, went, they did daycare a couple of days a week just to give me a bit of space to work. But, um, you know, we just went to the beach and we didn't, you know, rush around. I didn't over schedule them. Mm-hmm. They did they didn't have me rushing off into the city and back and trying to, you know, fit their lives around my work and I didn't I didn't want that for them. I wanted just a calm, peaceful, you know, existence. A simple life. Mm-hmm. You're speaking my language. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't always achieve it. You know? No, I don't think anyone does. You know, but... you can you can you can try, but I think it's not so much achieving it in the every moment either. It's it's the overall kind of way that you live your life and the philosophy which you use to guide your decisions and that kind of thing. I mean, everyone's lives can be complicated in you know a season or a moment or a week or in the lead up to a TED talk or something like that. You know, we we add things in at different stages and it makes it not as simple. But I think when you look back over six months or a year or five years you get a, a really good idea of whether or not you've achieved it most of the time. I think that's mm. probably um, yeah. the way I try and do it. I mean, of course, yeah. keep it as simple as possible, but mm. yeah. yeah. Well, I know nice you, um, look back. So yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. Um, I know you do have, uh, another call to take very shortly, but I just want to say thank you so much for, for oh, talking. It was really, yeah, it was brilliant. I, really I can't wait it. to, um, to watch your, your TED talk as well, because I'm sure that will be incredibly illuminating. But um, and we can always use it use an excuse to take a nap. As well. Yeah, well, you don't well, need Sarah an excuse. <laughs> no, you don't need an excuse. Just indulge in one and see what you never know. You never know what'll happen. No, you don't. The next greatest, mm-hmm. you know, big idea might come from a 20 minute yeah. power nap. Um, but th- yes, yeah, so thank you so much for, for today. And um, I will include links to your website and um, places that people can learn more about you and your TED Talk in the show notes yeah. for today's episode. Sure. So um, yep, people I'd should definitely check that out. Yeah, come and say hi on Twitter or Facebook. Awesome. Or blog. Yep, that'd be brilliant. I will definitely do that. Well, thank you. It was really nice talking. Oh, you too. That no, was a pleasure. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Sarah. Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of the Slow Home Podcast. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe via iTunes and leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening.